we feel grateful and we feel compassion. We feel proud of our abilities and want to share those skills. The brain interprets that as reward. And that makes us more willing to keep doing it and to persevering in this way. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger, and I'm here with producer Jason DeFilippo. On this episode, we're talking with David DeSteno. He's a professor of psychology at Northeastern University and the head of what's called the Social Emotions Group. Sound right up our alley? That's what I thought. So essentially, his work examines the mechanisms of the mind that shape vice and virtue, studying hypocrisy, compassion, pride, punishment, cheating, trust. His work just continually reveals that human moral behavior is much more variable than we might predict, and his new book is called Emotional Success, The Power of Gratitude, Compassion, and Pride. Of course, when I first saw that title, I thought, ah, gratitude and compassion and pride, oh, we've already done this, you know, I don't need more of this. But today, we're gonna discover what's called pro-social emotions. These are grit and willpower's more powerful cousins, more effective cousins, I should say, and we'll explore why pro-social emotions are actually more beneficial, both short and long-term, and we'll make the case for leveraging these emotions and skills instead of just trying harder, plowing through, keeping our head down, or working harder to resist or to accomplish something. And of course, we'll also discuss how we can cultivate these pro-social emotions as learnable skills, and how these skills will benefit us and those around us for years to come. As always, there's worksheets for today's episode, so you can make sure you solidify your understanding of all the key takeaways from David DeSteno. That link is always in the show notes at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. Now, let's hear from David DeSteno. The reason that we wanted to have you on the show is because at your work at Northeastern University, I'd heard about this and I thought, okay, we've had Angela Duckworth come on and talk about grit, we've had people come on and talk about habit forming and habit change, and these are really popular topics, loneliness, grit, and willpower, and these types of things are very popular. And look, it's January, man. This is like willpower month worldwide. Oh, yeah. And what you've found in your work is that willpower alone does not change habits in a healthy way that's sustainable. Is that an accurate that's fair. summary? That's fair, yeah. Well, first, after going, damn it, all these years cultivating <laughs> willpower down the drain, Unless you're just the most depressing scientist around, you didn't just go, hey, all this stuff you guys thought worked doesn't work. Drop mic, walk off stage. <laughs> I would hope you came up with another way to look at and possibly solve or begin to solve some of these problems. And your work came out with an interesting set of findings on what are called pro-social emotions. Mm -hmm. So tell us about these pro-social emotions. I, I think this is something people don't think about. We just really rely on willpower. Sure. Well, if you think about it, right, where did self-control originally come from, right? For most of human evolutionary history, we didn't care about saving for our 401k or completing the whole 30 or not eating the next marshmallow, right? What really mattered for people to survive and thrive was to have good cooperative relationships with others, people that would support you that you could share things with. And what leads to that is being fair, being honest, you know, not being a cheater, being loyal, investing in other people, helping them. And what really underlies that? You know, most of the time we're not trying to use willpower to think about, oh, I should be a better person and repay my debts. We act because we feel. And it's emotions, these pro-social emotions, things like gratitude and compassion and authentic sense of pride, not hubris, that for millennia have underlied those behaviors. They make us willing to sacrifice, to help other people, to build relationships in the long run. But what we're finding now is you can pivot their power 
and they can make us help someone else who's very important to our own success, and that is our own future selves. But the real problem of self-control is the problem originally of cooperation. And so now we have to think about it, not cooperating with other people, but cooperating with our own future self who's going to be better off if we're willing to sacrifice and have some grit in the moment. That reminds me of this old Simpsons episode where Homer's doing something really dumb as usual. And someone's like, hey, you know, this is going to cause this huge problem later on. And he goes, that's a problem for future Homer. I do not envy (laughs) that guy. No, that is exactly right. I mean, the problem of being short-sighted or myopic is the the problem of human existence. I mean, you know, now it's January, it's early January, everybody's focused on New Year's resolutions, but they're really the problem of daily life, right? That is, how do I not spend money on the iPhone 10 right now and put it in my 401k? How do I not loaf on the couch watching The Simpsons and get myself to the gym? It's all about thinking what is going to benefit future me. And that requires present me to sacrifice in the moment. And if we have this idea that, oh, I don't want to see future me, that guy's screwed, we're in trouble. And as a society, I think we're doing that time and time again. You know, we're building debt. We're not investing in infrastructure. You know, we're just too focused on the moment. And that's going to cause problems down the line. Yeah, that's something that scares our generation a lot. I'm just going to go ahead and speak for all of us. (laughs) (laughs) The debt thing freaks us out because most of us don't really understand it fully. And it just the number is so enormous that there's just no way that we can kind of pull off a fix here. And also, I think people who are my parents' age and slightly younger, 60s and 70s, they just think, yeah, that's not going to happen during my lifetime, so that's a huge bummer, and we can't really wrap our minds around that either, so good luck with that. (laughs) Even me at, at age 37, I'm looking at this and thinking, okay, well, can we push this off another 50 years? Is that a possibility that I can just leave that steaming pile to my own kids? And that seems like what we're doing on a regular basis with pretty much everything. These pro-social emotions make a lot of sense. However, doesn't it just require willpower to say, hey, I shouldn't buy the iPhone 10. I should put this in my 401k, which doesn't give me a dopamine hit, isn't gonna get me a new toy to play with, doesn't get me excited at all. How can I just say, I choose to be excited about future Jordan's IRA? That's not really something I <laughs> see myself doing. Well, you know, you've got a lot in there to unpack. That's an issue. I mean, you know, the human mind, what we have kind of built into us is this tendency to discount the value of the future, right? And in an uncertain world, kind of where the mind evolved, that made some sense. You know, if you had some food now, well, you better eat it because you're not sure what's coming tomorrow or even if you're going to be alive tomorrow. So the tendency to discount the future makes some sense. A bird in the hand is worth more than two in the bush sometimes. The problem is we're living in a world where certainty is higher than it's ever been. If you invest in a CD or a bond, you know it's going to pay you. If you smoke now, you know likely you're going to have cancer, et cetera, later on. And because the world is more certain, these decisions that we make that have different consequences as time unfolds, something economists call intertemporal choice, you know, should I spend the money now and get that dopamine hit or save it so I'll be happier later? Our minds are a bit miscalibrated. And this is why I think over and over again, we're running more into this problem of why we need to think long-term and favor the long-term. But for most of our evolutionary history, that wasn't as important as it is now in some ways. Yeah, we're getting more and more problems because of that. And so how do you solve the problem for, your, like you're saying, investing in future Jordan's 401k? The way to do it is to kind of want to cooperate with future Jordan. And so the example that I always use, you know, there's a psychologist named Hal Hirschfeld at UCLA, and he has these wonderful studies where he has people make decisions about investing money in their 401ks or using it for something else. And he takes pictures of them and he age morphs their face. 
And so what he can do is show you yourself what you're going to look like when you're 70 versus what you look like now. Then he manipulates if that face is kind of happy or sad. And what he finds is that if he makes future you kind of look a little sad, people are way more willing to put money away into their 401k than to spend it on immediate pleasure because they're having compassion for themselves, right? It makes it real. And so my argument is for all of these things, if we work to feel compassion, to feel gratitude, to feel pride, what it does is it recalibrates our minds kind of algorithm. It makes us discount the future less and therefore it becomes easier to persevere toward those goals. You're not fighting a desire for pleasure in the moment. Your mind's actually coming to value the future satisfaction more and it makes it easier to persevere toward it. So should I take a picture of my wife and I age morph our faces into sad faces and put one in every corner of the house? Like North Korea, how yeah. there's just a picture of the leader in each room? <laughs> no, you could Sad that, Jordan. But, but the beauty of these emotions, right, is that they don't have to be tied to a specific outcome. So in my lab, we kind of run a marshmallow test for adults. So many people know the marshmallow test, but for those who don't, right, it's Walter Michel, a psychologist, is famous for running these studies where he'd bring in four-year-olds and put a marshmallow down in front of one and say, well, you can have this now. I've got to go do something for about 15 minutes. If you can wait till I get back, you can have two, right? And that's kind of the problem of intertemporal choice for everybody, right? Do I take my little goal right now, my pleasure right now, or do I wait for a bigger pleasure? So we do the same thing with adults, and except we use cash because most adults like cash more than marshmallows. And so we bring them in and we have them answer a bunch of questions of the form. Would you rather have X dollars now or Y dollars in Z days where Y is always bigger than X and Z varies from weeks to months? So a typical question is, would you rather have $35 now or $75 in three weeks? And we tell them we're going to pick one of their responses and honor it. So, you know, it's real. So if you said I'd want the $35 now, we'd give it to you now. If you want the $75 in three weeks, we'll mail you a check in three weeks. And from that, what we can do is calculate people, how much people discount the future. And what you find is the average person is pretty impatient. Most people, you know, in our studies will take $17 now to forego getting $100 in a year. And if you think about it, unless you need that $17 right now, given what the banks are paying, the opportunity to quintuple your money is a pretty damn good investment. But they'll take the $17. If we make them feel grateful, right, just recall something that happened to you that makes you feel grateful, doesn't matter what it is. And we then have them answer these questions. Their patience doubles. Right? Suddenly, it takes $30 for them to be willing to forego the future reward. Another way of saying that is they discount the future less. They're more willing to wait for the second marshmallow in marshmallow language. Now, the important thing there, too, is it's not just feeling good, right? If we do it with happiness, people feel happy. They're still as impatient as people who don't feel anything. There's something about feeling these emotions that bind us to cooperation with others. What research has shown is that this tendency to discount, the more you discount the value of the future, it's tied to greater addiction, to poor academic performance, poor performance at work, greater impulsivity and consumerism. And so by showing that we can actually increase people's ability to value the future by altering these emotions, it just eases the way to self-control. I like to say it's a bottom-up route to grit, right? Yeah. I do wonder, though, you must have controlled for this in your experiment, socioeconomic mm -hmm. status, because right now I would definitely choose the $75 in three weeks because I just don't need it. But if you asked me this in yeah. high school, I would have been like, yeah. I don't know if I can answer this. 
I really need money or I can't drive yeah. for the next three weeks. Right, that's exactly right. And if you need that money for something that is essential for you, then it's perfectly rational to take it. And so the way that we deal with that is we bring people in and we randomly assign them to conditions and assess SES and, and know that across the conditions before we make some of them feel grateful or happy that SES is the same. And it is. And that's also important because you might say, well, you know, Dave, maybe it's just people who are more likely to feel grateful. They're just more patient people in general. And I would say, well, maybe you're right. But when we bring people in and we randomly assign them and equate SES and all other personal characteristics and then make one group feel grateful and the other not, we can be confident that it's actually the, the emotion that's driving the effect. SES being socioeconomic status, just right. in case people weren't hip to those abreaves. It reminds me of a little story when I was a kid. If this wasn't a marshmallow test per se, but I remember the teachers gave us marshmallows and they said, don't eat these because they were for an art project. And <laughs> a lot of people ate them, of course. This is like kindergarten or first grade. And I didn't want to get in trouble because I was often kind of too hyper and impulsive and things like that as a kid. So what I did is I took Elmer's glue, and I don't even know if they still have that, but I covered all of them in Elmer's glue and put them in a giant <laughs> wad. <laughs> and I knew even back then, 2020 hindsight, that I could use my own psychology against myself, right? I right, don't want right. to eat this if it's covered in glue, although I was still tempted. That's beautiful. I mean, what, what you're doing there is a child-friendly version of what behavioral economists call a pre-commitment, right? That is, you know you're going to fail. And so you've got to make yourself not fail. It's kind of like if you know you're going to spend all your money, you put it in an account that has high penalties for early withdrawal. Or if you don't want to eat the Ben and Jerry's at 2 a.m., make sure it's not in your freezer. Then, you know, you don't want to taste glue. So you are pre-committing yourself not to eating that. But in some ways, what you're doing there and all these strategies, they're an implicit affirmation that willpower doesn't work. Because if you knew your willpower was going to work, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't need to. That's true. Although I will stop you right there. I definitely ate all those marshmallows later <laughs> with glue on them. With glue. <laughs> I just waited until the glue was not quite dry because let's uh, let's admit it right now. We've all uh, eaten at least one to two containers of Elmer's glue and probably chewed a lot of the caps as well. Or was that just me? Now maybe I've shared too much. I don't know. No, I chewed the caps. I don't know if I ate any glue, but I definitely chewed the caps. I think if you chewed the caps, you ate glue. I ate the I glue. Think the, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. Are we wired to think about the willpower angle or do you think we're wired to these pro-social emotions? Because I feel like willpower for me was something I learned later, but I might be mistaken here. So I think we are, our kind of emotional intuitive system is pretty much pre-wired in many ways. I mean, it can be shaped by your early learning, but it's pretty shaped, it's pretty pre-wired. Really what willpower is, is it's kind of one part of what we psychologists use a fancy term for called executive function, which basically means that part of your mind that allows you to think, plan, and kind of overrule the more automatic aspects of your mind. And I think growing up, we learned that willpower is important. People tell you, don't do this, you know, use force of will not to do this. And it can certainly work. I'm not here to say it doesn't work or you should never use it. It certainly works. All I'm saying is that it's a much more fragile tool and a potentially, and we'll talk about this soon, kind of a harmful and a biased tool than relying on pro-social emotions, right? Pro-social emotions come out of us innately, and if we feel them, they make us willing to cooperate and support other people. Relying on willpower takes a lot of effort for people. It's hard to keep resisting something that brings you pleasure in the moment. And the more you do it, your brain kind of records and interprets that resistance as effort. And after a bit of time, that effort keeps going up and people will fail on an average day. 
one out of five times people try to resist a temptation to give in to something, they fail. If you look at important goals like New Year's resolutions, it's even worse. You know, 8% of New Year's resolutions are kept till the end of the year. 25% of them have probably failed by the time the show comes on, <laughs> the first week of January. So willpower is fragile in that way, but it's also biased. So we do studies on cheating in my lab. So, I mean, imagine this, you come into my lab and I say, look, Jordan, there are two tasks that need to be done. One's short and fun, takes about 10 minutes. One is really long and onerous, involves logic problems and all these boring things. It'll take you about 45 minutes to do. Here's a coin flip. I want you to flip the coin. If you get heads, you can do the fun task. If you do tails, you'd have to do the onerous task. And then we leave people alone. Now, of course, we give them a virtual coin flipper so I can control what they get. And we rig it so that tails comes up so they get the hard task. And they have to go and report which task they have and do it. What do you think most of them do? I don't know. What do they do? We leave you alone after we tell you, here's two tasks. Here's the coin flipper. Whatever this tells you, you go ahead and do, and we just leave you alone. Of course, you're oh, I would, video. I would totally cheat a hundred percent of the time. <laughs> All right, yeah. So ninety percent of people actually do this; they actually cheat. Now, if you ask them before they go in if this is the correct thing to do, fully one hundred percent of people. We've asked our own subjects who are going to be in the experiment. We've asked people who aren't even going to be in the experiment, so they don't feel any pressure. What should you do? It's the only time I get unanimous data in my life. A hundred percent of people say not doing with the coin flip tells you to do is wrong. But 90% of them do it because they think they're not going to be caught. And if you ask them later, how fairly did you act? Most of them say what they did was fair. But the interesting thing is if you have them watch somebody else do it, they'll condemn that person for doing the exact same thing that they did. And they'll create stories for why it was okay for them to do it. You know, so why did you cheat? And they'll say, well, Normally I wouldn't do that, but you know, today I had an appointment later on that I just couldn't risk being late for. Or my favorite is the one guy who told me, well, the guy who was coming next who would get whatever task I didn't, and I really thought that he would like the harder logic problems and would find them as a challenge. So I cheated altruistically. Wow, that person's got some strong <laughs> rationalization game. Well, that's exactly it. You're hitting on it, rationalization, right? And so most people, when I tell them these studies, they think, oh, what happened is their willpower wasn't strong enough. They gave in and they cheated so they could get the easy, more fun task. But that's not what it was. Because if we run the experiment again, but this time when we ask people, how fairly did you behave when you cheated? And if we distract them, that is, we kind of use what's called a cognitive load in psychology, which basically means we kind of occupy their mind doing multiple tasks at once. And what that does is it prevents them from kind of engaging in rationalization. Then they say what they did was just as bad. It was just as bad as if anybody else cheated. They themselves acted immorally. And what's happening there is when we don't give you the opportunity to rationalize, that guilt that you feel, that pang of guilt is directing your decision. It's the emotion that's telling you, that's pushing you to do the right thing right, to have control and do the right thing. But if we give you the opportunity to rationalize about what your options are, people will talk themselves into it. What that means in modern life is I can talk myself into why not saving for retirement this month is okay. I can talk myself into why smoking or eating the extra donut right now is okay. I'm worth it. It's okay. I'll be good next month. And what that tells us is rationalization is an easy way to talk ourselves into not having grit, or not using self-control. And if we talk ourselves into it, then willpower, it never even comes into the picture because we're not even going to invoke it. And my argument here is if you cultivate these pro-social emotions, things like gratitude and compassion, 
they only push you one way. They're not subject to rationalization. They're only going to make you willing to sacrifice to help yourself and somebody else for the long run. So the rationalization happens before or after? Because I, I feel like it happens after, but it sounds like what you're telling me is it happens before the action is taken. It happens both before and after. Nobody wants to do the awful task. So they're thinking, how can I justify what I'm going to do? Now, when we distract them, we only distract them after they made their decision because we need to know who was going to cheat in the first place. So when we distract them, we're preventing them from answering the question of you know why they did what they did. And we're getting that kind of automatic emotional output, which says, yeah, what I did was wrong. Why do people do this? Well, think exactly what you're saying with your, you know, Homer Simpson example, you know, future me is screwed. If you actually believe that you yourself are a cheater or don't have any self-control or can't stick to your goals, then you're never going to try and do anything for future you. Why should you not eat the donut today? You know, future you tomorrow is going to eat it. Why should you save money today? You know, future you is going to blow it. And so we create these rationalizations for ourselves to believe that we are trustworthy, honest, good people even when we kind of break our own moral codes. But by cultivating these emotions, they only push us to behave toward more benefit to the long run. Yeah, because future you might get hit by a bus. So why try? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But really in the long run, for most people, investing in the future, whether it's your own future self or investing in other people who will be there to support you when, in, when you need it, those aggregated gains over the long run pay a lot more benefit than any immediate pleasure you're going to get in the moment. You're listening to The Art of Charm with our guest, David Destena. So stick around and we'll get right back to the show after these important messages. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launcher online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, 
all the way to the, did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze your online marketing campaigns. And sign up today for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Thank you for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. To learn more about our sponsors, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. But for now, let's get back to Jordan and David DeSteno. So willpower gets depleted. Pro-social emotions become stronger the more we use them. And in your work, you also mentioned that they're contagious. We always say you only go as high as your five closest friends, and if you want to be great, surround yourself with other people who are great and things like that on the show. So your science, in a way, proves this case because if you have these pro-social emotions in play that are replacing or supporting willpower, then other people in your circle may have the same, which of course then leads to a greater group win or set of wins. Exactly, they do that in two ways. One way is simple emotional contagion, that is, if we're around people who feel sad, sometimes we tend to absorb that and feel it ourselves. same with happiness. So if I'm around people who are cultivating and expressing gratitude and compassion and pride in their work, I'm likely to catch that through contagion and feel it myself. And to the extent that I feel it, it reinforces success and cooperation in everyone in the group. But there's another way that they're contagious too. If I'm feeling compassion and empathy and I see, Jordan, you're having a bad day or having trouble at work, that will motivate me to help you And my compassion that motivates me to help you leads you to suddenly feel grateful to me. So not only are you catching the emotion people are feeling, but through reciprocal interactions of these emotions, they tend to evoke each other. And what it does is as they flow through a network, they tend to increase everybody's success because they increase everybody's focus on the team on the long term, on the long run. You know, there was this great study I talk about in the book that Google did, and they were trying to see what characterized their most successful teams. Going into it, they assumed, well, it was going to be the technical expertise. And sure, that mattered somewhat. But what they really found that predicted success of a work group was the extent to which they felt empathy and compassion and social support for each other. Because a lot of work really relies on groups working together, one person not trying to take the credit for themselves, one person being willing to work hard to support another when they need it. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of corporations place an emphasis on things like empathy and compassion, gratitude in their management practices. Adam Grant has some great work showing that employees who are shown gratitude by their supervisors will persevere harder and work longer on tasks that are difficult to do. And I think these are kind of real world evidence examples of what we're finding in the lab. Yeah, in your book, Emotional Success, it does seem 
that you've hit on something quite special here because look, if willpower was the solution, wouldn't we have evolved it in spades? Well, that's right. I mean, it makes no sense. I think we all agree that the ability to persevere, to have grit, to have self-control is an important ingredient in success. Study after study proves that point. No one doubts that. The question is how? And if it's some, how do we do that? And if it's something that's so important to survival, it shouldn't be so fragile. It shouldn't be so hard. Self-control shouldn't be about feeling miserable, right? Usually evolution makes things that are good for us feel good, right? Why does sex feel good? It's because evolutionarily that's the main goal to procreate and so we want to do it. If sex were exceedingly hard, that would be an evolutionary problem in passing on our genes. And so the argument is the same here, right? We have these innate emotional responses that we feel as rewarding. When people give, there's great work by Michael Norton at Harvard Business School uh, and Elizabeth Dunn at uh, UBC, which shows that just giving activates reward centers in the brain, right? So when we feel grateful, when we feel compassion, we feel proud of our abilities and want to share those skills, the brain interprets that as reward. And that makes us more willing to keep doing it and to persevering in this way. But there's one other part of it, of using these social emotions that I think is essential. Another big problem in modern life, especially in the workplace, is the plague of loneliness. I mean, from 1985 until the early 2000s, the number of people who reported that they had, you know, at least one friend that they could rely on dropped from 80-something percent down to about 50 percent. Today, 53 percent of Americans report that they are feeling lonely often in their public lives, professional lives. And what does that do? We know from work by John Cassiopo, University of Chicago, that loneliness is as bad for your body as it's smoking, right? It takes a terrible toll both on your physiology and on your emotional and mental well-being. When you cultivate these emotions, not only do they make you persevere more, not only do they give you grit, they also give you grace. And what that means is they make you behave in ways that attract others to you. There's lots of work out there, some from our lab, some from other people's labs, that show when people experience and cultivate gratitude, their social relationships grow stronger. When they show a good sense of confidence and pride, not arrogance or hubris, but a pride in the skills you have, that people are drawn to them and want to work with them and are even willing to see them as leaders and people who are compassionate, that's kind of one of the first things we notice about warmth in other people and we want to be with them. So cultivating these emotions makes us also behave in ways that draw others to us, that reinforce our social relationships. And in so doing, they help you kind of, to use a David Brooksism, they help you cultivate not only your resume virtues, those that are essential to building your career, but your eulogy ones, those that you want to be remembered for and that at the end of your life will make you feel like it was a life well lived. We've had Jessica Tracy on before to talk about hubristic versus authentic pride. And of course, Adam Grant, friend of the show, Angela Duckworth, friend of the show, and even Dan Ariely sort of brings this up. These adjacent points to your work and emotional success, it seems like there's so many different things happening with our decision-making, right? There's intuitive and emotional mechanisms. There's the whole willpower, rational, conscious deliberation thing. These two systems don't seem to agree a lot of the time. And is that what rationalization is? Our rational mind trying to kind of win the fight against our pro-social emotions? Is that what's happening here? Because it seems like those two things conflict a lot. I'm not so sure that they conflict a lot. It's just that when they do conflict, that's when we notice it, right? When ah. you go through your daily life, you know, when your rational mind and your kind of intuitive mind are in agreement, you don't notice that tension. When we notice it is when they're in conflict. And the thing that I like to point out is you can't map 
them in a one-to-one way to kind of good versus bad or adapter versus not. They're both trying to solve the same problem. It's just that they rely on different sources of information to do it. And when they come into conflict, that's when, you know, these interesting behaviors of these irrational decisions seem to occur. And so what I'm arguing is that relying on emotion all the time isn't good. That's not what I'm saying, because, you know, there are many emotions that can lead us to behaviors that are very present focused and potentially destructive. So the important aspect of using emotions as tools to achieve your goals is to have the wisdom to choose the right ones. And for me, when we're talking about achieving our long-term goals, it's these social emotions, these emotions that only exist in terms of interactions with other people. I mean, the problem of social life is really the problem of intertemporal choice. It's really the problem of grit, right? I mean, when I think of grit, what do you really think of? Who's somebody who has grit? I think of like the grandfather who has emphysema and is pulling an oxygen tank behind him because he wants to see his grandson or granddaughter on the soccer field that day. You know, that's true grit. Or the mom who sacrifices working three jobs to get her kid through college, that's grit. You know, we talk about it now in terms of getting into college and acing spelling bees, and that's true. It's the same process. But it's those emotions we feel that make us responsible to others that are the source of a lot of our motivational power. And I'm arguing that we can use them as tools to achieve our long-term goals, any long-term goals. And so when we're having that rationalization that's telling us, go ahead, you can get away with it, or there's no reason why you have to not throw in the towel in this moment, do what's fun. If you cultivate these emotions, it's like giving a booster shot to your intuitive system, to system one in Danny Kahneman's terminology. It helps it in that fight that you just identified, in that struggle where rationalization is trying to force you to kind of give up on your long-term goals or why that's not needed. Cultivating these emotions is a way to kind of give system one a booster shot. So what if we've already developed a ton of willpower? Because there's a lot of people going, well, I'm glad I don't have this problem. I don't have to cultivate these dumb pro-social emotions. I got all this willpower work by Kathleen Vose at uh, University of Minnesota and Willem Hoffman, they followed people for weeks in daily life, kind of, you know, experience sampling them. Every time they had an urge for a temptation, they had to kind of record it and what they were doing and were they successful or not. And what they found is that, you know, these people who we think are paragons of willpower, their willpower isn't stronger than any of the rest of us. It's just that they're better at living their lives and planning their days in a way that keeps them from coming into contact with temptation in the first place. So am I saying that there aren't individual differences in willpower? No, there are. But it's not like anybody has exceedingly great willpower. I mean, think about the studies that I told you about on cheating. Every person, over hundreds of people, told us cheating was wrong. Yet 90% of them did. There's not that many people who are that good at resisting temptation. You know, why are 25% of New Year's resolutions gone by now? So I think people delude themselves that they have willpower, that they can do it for the reasons we talked about before. But I don't think that's the case. And also you show that there's plenty of bad stuff that shakes out of relying on willpower. Not only is it less effective, but there's a lot of unethical behavior that benefits you in the moment that doesn't work over time. And even weird stuff that I never expected, like stress, memory damage. That's so strange. It just shows, it's almost like a fight or flight instead of using your natural endurance to get things done. It's like, you can stay up all night and finish that project, but it'll decrease your lifespan. That's kind of what we're (laughs) looking at, right? Yeah, I think you're right. That struggle that you hinted at before between system one and system two, you know, rational, intuitive mind. Anytime our body is facing a struggle, it's stressful. And in trying to use willpower to kind of overrule or repress our desires for immediate pleasure, 
It causes stress. The work by James Gross at Stanford has shown that, you know, when you're trying to regulate your emotional responses to kind of tamp down desires for things, it affects your memory. So if you're an employee at work or a kid at school and you're trying to use willpower to make yourselves work harder, it's just going to affect your ability to learn and encode the information you need. There's great work by Greg Miller, who's a psychologist at Northwestern University, where he looked at kids from disadvantaged backgrounds. And he showed that the kids who were trying to succeed and resist temptations in life who had better self-control here relying on willpower. Yeah, that willpower helped them, but there was a price to be paid, right? Their stress responses went up, uh, so much so that they had premature aging of their white blood cells and immunity. And so exactly what you're saying is struggling every day with willpower is taking a toll on your life. So yes, it may help you sometimes get those goals you want, but you're probably not gonna be around as long to enjoy them. And that's not an optimal system. Whereas when you cultivate these emotions, gratitude, compassion, and pride, they lower your blood pressure. They reduce your heart rate. They're kind of like a balm to the body. They help people sleep better. It's a more effortless way to get grip. Stay right there. We'll be right back with more from David DeSteno after these brief announcements. And now a quick message from our newest sponsor. Remember, supporting our sponsors is the best way to support the show. That's right. AJ, did you know socks, tees, and underwear are the three most requested clothing items in homeless shelters? I had absolutely no idea. Bombas knows, and they're doing something about it, making ridiculously comfortable versions of all three and donating one for every item sold. With all the clothing brands out there, it's nice to find some basics that don't just feel good, but do good too. That is completely amazing. And that's why we're so excited to be working with our newest sponsor, Bombas. To date, Bombas, one purchase equals one donated commitment, has helped customers donate over 100 million essential clothing items to people facing homelessness. That's a lot of good done by people just buying the Bombas they wear every day. Visit bombas.com slash charm and use code charm for 20% off your first purchase. And once you try Bombas, you'll know why so many people have purchased and donated so many. The comfort geniuses at Bombas work tirelessly to make your everyday things your favorite things. Whether there's an arch-supporting sock that feels like it was sculpted to your foot, a buttery soft tee with no itchy tag, or underwear that feels like nothing while supporting everything. The best part, AJ, Bombas has a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you got the wrong size, your dog chews up your socks, or a pair vanishes in the washing machine, and you know they will, it's easy to get a free return, exchange, or replacement. There's nothing worse than when Puppers gets a hold of my favorite Bombas athletic socks. They're precision engineered for being active with sweat wicking power, impact cushioning, blister defense, and no annoying toe seams that get between you and your goals. I try to limit my essential purchases to one time a year. And I was so pumped to know that Bombas has my underwear, socks, and tees needs completely covered. I have been loving the soft underwear and tees here in Medellin. Ready to get comfy and give back? Head over to bombas.com slash charm and use code charm for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash charm and use code charm at checkout. Thank you for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. Your support keeps us on the air. For a list of all the discounts from our amazing sponsors, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Now for the conclusion of our interview with David DeStena. So grit, of course, important. The strategies and tools we use to get there 
hugely important because there's different paths there. One is through right, that's exactly a thorny right. jungle and the other one is through this nice, social, balmy path. That's right. I completely agree with Angela. Grit is hugely important to people's success. It's how we get there, the tools that we use. And I think right now, we're all fighting with not only one hand tied behind our back, but the stronger hand by not using these pro-social emotions. Let's talk about compassion. This is something that was actually quite a surprise for me to see in work about willpower or about grit, for sure. Compassion almost seems like the opposite in many ways of grit because we gotta force our way through it. But of course, knowing about pro-social emotion and compassion for our future selves, now it all kind of makes sense. But how did this shake out? How did you end up coming to the conclusion that compassion was one of the key elements of pro-social behavior and a habit that's worth cultivating? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think you're right. I think most people think of compassion as kind of this soft emotion, but it's really quite a powerful emotion. So it came out of our work on studying just the effects of compassion on behavior. And what we found is that when we make people feel compassion, they're willing to make all kinds of sacrifices to help other people. And so we thought, well, maybe that's related to kind of grit and self-control. If you think about self-control, well, there's probably nobody better at it than Buddhist monks, right? <laughs> most of their life is about controlling desire, right? A friend of mine is a high-ranking Buddhist monk, and I was talking to him about it, and he said, yeah, he goes, you know, the reason monks practice meditation isn't to get a better memory, you know, isn't to get lower blood pressure, isn't to be more creative. I mean, if you read the New York Times or the Atlantic, you know, mindfulness is the rage these days, right? If you, if you practice meditation, you'll be better at work, you'll have lower blood pressure, on and on. That's not why it came about. You know, Buddha didn't really much care whether or not you were going to ace your GMATs or or save for your 401k. It was all about living ethically and ending suffering. And so what the monks found is that once compassion becomes unleashed and meditation is the way to unleash it, suddenly self-control, the ability to kind of persevere toward the long-term becomes easy. So what my friend told me, the monk, is he said, when monks first take their vows to be ethical, to stop gambling, to stop drinking and all things, they fail a lot like the rest of us because they're relying on willpower and they can try and talk themselves into why it's okay or why the mistake wasn't so bad and they'll try and hide it from their superiors. But once meditation begins to unleash compassion, suddenly the difficulty falls away because that compassion just changes what you value. And that maps onto what we're doing in our lab. When we make people feel compassion, they're more willing to accept sacrifices and help other people, including their own future selves. And so that's where the idea came from. Do we just do a meditation practice and dot, 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 compassion, dot, 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 more compassion for our future selves and we don't need willpower anymore? How does this work? Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, it sounds kind of silly. And people say, are you saying we should all sit around and sing Kumbaya? It's like, no, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is there are different ways to cultivate these emotions and meditation is one. So, you know, let me give you an example. So we brought people into our lab, people who had never meditated before, and we put half of them into a meditation class with a Buddhist Lama and half of them on a wait list. And eight weeks later, we brought them back to the lab and we wanted to see if it affected their compassion. And so they thought they were coming to have their memory measured, but in reality, what was happening, the real test was in the waiting room to the lab. So they'd come into the waiting room in the lab and there are three chairs and there are two people sitting in the other two chairs, actors who worked for us. And so what do the subjects do? They sit in the third chair. A few minutes later, another actor comes in who works for us. She's on crutches. She's walking in. She's got one of those big foot boots on, the kind that you wear when you break your ankle. She's wincing in pain. <laughs> she comes in. There's no chair. and She kind of leans against the wall and sighs. We told the other two actors who work for us to ignore her. So they're thumbing on their iPhones. They're not doing anything. And so the question is, what would the real subject 
do. About 15% of people on the wait list, those who didn't meditate, got up, sacrificed their own kind of comfort to give their chair to this poor woman in faux pain. How about the meditators? Fully 50% of them jumped right up. We more than tripled the amount of people who were willing to show a compassionate act to help someone else out, sacrificing their own comfort. And you might say, well, okay, but that's kind of hard to do to go find a Buddhist monk and sit at that person's knees. Some people don't have the time or the money. And I'd say, you're right. So we did it again, but we used a mindfulness app, one that I know was developed by someone with monastic training, found the exact same thing. And work on compassion by other people has shown that it's tied to less procrastination, greater work in terms of reaching your goals, less addictive behaviors, on and on. And so what we're showing is simply practicing mindfulness 10 minutes a day increases your compassion and that compassion increases your willingness to sacrifice to help other people and your own future self. I feel like the people who didn't give up their seat are just bastards. You know, I don't think you have to meditate to get there. <laughs> when we did this experiment, I ended up writing a piece for the New York Times about it. And this kind gentleman from the South wrote a letter to the editor. And he said, you people up there in Boston, where we ran the study, you don't need meditation. You need manners. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, yeah, maybe he's right. But I mean, in reality, we set up what's called a bystander effect, right? Because we had two other people in the situation who weren't helping, that tends to make helping the hardest, right? It's kind of like that situation where there's a homeless person on the street and everybody's walking by him or her. It makes it easier for you to walk by him or her. Nobody else is helping. Why should I? And so the situation we created is kind of the one where it is the hardest to help. Yet, you know, we more than tripled the percentage of people who were helping simply by having them practice mindfulness for a few weeks. Okay, but man, the idea that there would be anybody who thinks that was okay is a little scary. And Right, but here again is the problem of rationalization, right? And so people are yeah. just saying, oh, somebody else can do it. I can do it. It doesn't make me a bad person, right? Until you don't do the right thing. Yeah, that makes sense. It really is. If we're not going to help somebody who needs CPR laying on the ground having a seizure or something, then we're probably not going to give up our seat for somebody who walked in, even if their ankle does hurt. And now pride, something that Jessica Tracy talked about a lot on the show in the recent past how does pride fit into all this? Because that seems like such a random addendum. Oh, by the way, also pride can solve or harm you. Yeah, it seems like the odd one out. I will agree with you. Jess Tracy talks about two different types of pride, hubristic pride and authentic pride. Authentic pride is, is a pride that you have for skills that you actually have. You know, hubristic pride is kind of arrogant. I'm great at everything. That can be rather destructive. So the pride I'm talking about is the authentic type. Now, how does it fit in with these other two? If you think about it, where does pride come from in an evolutionary sense, right? Where pride comes from is an ability or a skill that everybody around you values, right? People who had a skill that was valuable throughout history were the people that others wanted to partner with, that others wanted to cooperate with. And pride goes up or down as a function, one function of how much those around you admire you. And so for us, pride fits into this kind of pro-social emotion trilogy in the sense that it marks you as someone with whom others want to cooperate. And when you feel pride, it makes you more willing to work harder, to persevere, to have self-control, to develop those skills. So for example, in our lab, we bring people in, we have them do this kind of silly perception task where they have to count the numbers of red dots on scenes that are varying very quickly. Nobody cares how well they could do that. They shouldn't. But we give some of them praise for doing it, right? Saying why this is an important ability, why it's valued. 10 minutes later, they report feeling proud about that ability, something they never cared about before, but because of those people around them, who again are actors working for us, say it's important, 
they now feel proud for it. And then when we give them the opportunity to work on tasks to show their skills and to keep honing those skills in this weird domain, they work 40% longer. Why? Because that pride is pushing them to do it. Now, because humans have this kind of unique ability to take a third person kind of stance on ourselves, we can be our own audience. We can be proud of things that we care about and nobody else does, but that's not where pride originally came from, right? It originally came from a way to show status, to show importance, to show value, to make us persevere to develop those skills. It seems just as easy or even easier to cultivate pro-social emotions and the fact that they're better long-term than just trying to resist because nobody is really naturally that good at willpower, right? We all kind of learn it through brute force methods in college or grad school or high school, usually a combination of those. So the fact that we now as adults can actually do something that's gonna work for us long-term that doesn't make us wanna throw ourselves through the nearest plate glass window every time we see a cupcake, (laughs) (laughs) that's a big relief, I think, for a lot of us. Well, it is. I mean, I think the analogy I like to use is imagine a candle burning with a flame and that flame is your grit, so to speak, to keep going. What willpower is trying to do is it's trying to kind of like put a shield around it to keep it from blowing out in the wind. What these pro-social emotions do are they're really kind of adding fuel to the flame from the bottom, right? They're not a struggle. They're a way to ease the path. And I think because of that, they're easier to use and more beneficial in the long run. Is there anything you want to leave us with before we wrap up here? So I think, you know, one other benefit of using these social emotions for success is that they kind of build social capital. They build relationships. When you're relying on willpower, it's kind of like you, right? I'm thinking me, I've got to power through this. I've got to, you know, work harder. You're not usually thinking about how that interacts with those people around you. But when you experience these emotions, right, it ties you to other people who are working around you on joint goals or trying to achieve their own goals too. It kind of builds a social network and it ensures that people in that network support each other. And let's face it, the more people within a group support each other, the better the outcome group for that group is in the long run. I mean, you know, when people say, what makes you successful? Should I be a jerk? Or should I be cooperative and honest and a nice guy? I say, well, what's your time frame? If your time frame is short, then be a jerk, take credit for other people's stuff, you know, don't help them and you'll rise to the top. But over time, no one's gonna wanna cooperate with you or work with you and it's gonna be a problem. In the long run, the people who succeed and therefore the teams that succeed are the ones that show empathy and compassion and cooperation and gratitude for each other. So there's lots of work out there showing that. You know, there's one of my most recent example by a friend of mine, Nalanjana Dasgupta at the University of Massachusetts. She was looking at why is it the case that women tend to drop out more frequently in pursuing STEM careers, science and engineering, math careers in science. And it's often what she found is because they feel out of place. They don't feel like they have connections or role models. And so in the study, what she did was she assigned people to have mentors who were like them here in terms of gender. And what she found is a dramatic change in people's willingness and ability to succeed, right? The gender difference reduced dramatically. Suddenly women were persevering in science and STEM programs as well as men. And it was amazing. So it's not that there is a difference in ability. It's about in the social support that makes you feel that you can work hard, that you have support, that you have connection to others, right? Now, if you just looked at these women who dropped out, you'd say, oh, they dropped out because they didn't have the grit to do what it takes. No, they did. They had the capacity. It just wasn't being actualized. Whereas when you have a social relationship built on gratitude and showing pride to each other, having compassion and empathy for each other, those social bonds support 
success, no matter how hard the task. Great show, Jason. It's so funny how he catches people cheating and they rationalize it, and then he shows other people cheating, and they're like, wow, that guy's a real SOB. So funny, so predictable somehow, right? Yeah, there's so many good gotchas in this book that I never expected. And it's so funny because we get like five to 10 books a week. And I saw the blurb on the cover and I'm like, exactly like you said, it's like, oh no, more gratitude. Yeah. And then I read read the inside cover and I'm like, oh no, this guy's got a new take. We got to get this guy on and then read the book. And it's just like, wow, I really got a lot out of this book. Yeah, there's a lot of science that just trigger warning for those of you who uh, who <laughs> see scientific studies and go, okay, I don't need to read a lot of it. The book is loaded with science because he's a legit scientist. It's not just like, so I made this stuff up so I can sell a book. It's all, here's a bunch of data. So it's an interesting book, but you got to be ready for that. Every single thing that he talks about in the book is backed up with a study that he describes in detail. Be forewarned, it is a dense book, but when you walk away from it, you will know that this stuff is legit. Yes, exactly. That's always important, especially we, we couldn't do an episode about pseudoscience and then just not have a bunch <laughs> of scientists on, right? Now we got to kind of claw our way back up and make sure that people know we practice what we appreciate, right? So great big thank you to David DeSteno. The book title is Emotional Success, The Power of Gratitude, Compassion, and Pride. And of course, that'll be linked up in the show notes for this episode. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank David on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. Tweet at me your number one takeaway from David and from today's episode. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter, and I'm also on Instagram at Jordan Harbinger. Of course, these worksheets are so popular, Jason. Everybody's gotta know. We've got worksheets for today's episode along with a lot of recent episodes and all the episodes moving forward here so you can make sure you solidify your understanding of the key takeaways from each guest on the show. This one is no exception. That link is in the show notes, as always, at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. I also want to encourage you to join us in the challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. The challenge is about improving your networking and connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. In other words, networking, connecting, charisma, social capital, and the challenge is free. A lot of people don't know that. It's free. That's the whole point. It's a fun way to get the ball rolling, minimal time commitment, apply the things you're learning on the show here to your life, and get that momentum kicking. We'll also send you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show, which includes some great practical stuff that you can apply right away on body language, nonverbals, charisma, negotiation, networking, influence and persuasion, and everything else that we teach here on the show. This will make you a better networker, it'll make you a better connector, and it will make you a better thinker. That's all at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. Transcriptions by transcriptionoutsourcing.net. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. If you can think of anyone who might benefit from the episode you've just heard, please pay us the highest compliment and pay it forward. Share this episode with that person. It only takes a moment and great ideas are meant to be shared. So share the show with friends and enemies and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.